Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport on The Athletic. Joined as ever by The Athletic's Matt Slater and we'll look at a trio of football clubs today with contrasting fortunes. We're going to start north of the border with Hibernian who sit top of the Scottish Premiership and we'll talk to their owner Ron Gordon about the unique challenges of trying to run a successful football club in Scotland and compete at the same time with Celtic and Rangers. Then we'll move down to League Two in England with two clubs who've had turbulent summers, Swindon and Rochdale. Both clubs have been embroiled in ownership rows and faced financial difficulties. So we'll talk to the Swindon CEO, Rob Angus, and also the Rochdale chairman, Simon Gage. This is the Business of Sport on The Athletic. We'll start in Scotland. It's been a good start to the season for Hibs. They found themselves top of the table, even though it's early in the season. We'll start in Scotland. It's been a good start to the season for Hibs. They found themselves top of the table, even though it's early in the season. And we're joined by their owner, Ron Gordon. Ron, thanks for joining us. Just take us back to the start then and what attracted you to become the owner of Hibs back in 2019? Well, I mean, for starters, to be honest with you, Hibs is a fantastic club. It's just a really incredible club in terms of its heritage, history, its fan base, the assets that are in the club already. Easter Road Stadium is an incredible venue. Uh, Then we also have an 80-acre training center and facility that is not fully developed, but also gives us a tremendous amount of potential. I I tell people that I, I bought a fantastic club in a beautiful city in a country that's absolutely football mad. So uh, it's kind of hard to really, I, I, I think I would be very hard pressed to find a better opportunity for me to get into football than Hibs. On top of that, it's just a fabulous club in terms of its kind of fiber, its soul. There's, a, there's something about Hibs that is really, really special. Um, so it's, I've, I've mentioned this before because I, I really think it's an easy club to fall in love with. Um, and so I feel like a, a, a very smitten guy with, with football <laughs> and with Hibs, which is great. But very few people get involved in in investing in sport and football simply for the romance, do they? Well, that's true. I mean, I don't either. I mean, I, there's a little bit of romance in it because I, it's football is something that I've always loved and I've always wanted to get into. So it, I didn't go into this kind of just arbitrarily. I mean, I, I, I'd spent a long time looking for the right opportunity. Uh, and I feel kind of very blessed that Hibs kind of came my way. But, um, but you know, I, I also look at it as a business and I think there's an opportunity at Hibs to create value and develop a, a club. Yeah, when you look at Hibs, really, it, it, you see potential everywhere uh, and there's potential from a sporting perspective. There's potential from a, from a business perspective uh, and the, the, the creation of value in the brand of Hibs. So, you know, I, I, it's not, football is not a business that you really, from an operational perspective, are, are, are looking to essentially get significant cash flows out of. But you can create value. And and that's really kind of the way I've looked at this investment. So it's it's been good. So, so final one before Matt comes in. When when you were looking around for a long time, were you specifically looking at football clubs based in in Britain? Were you looking at football clubs based in Europe? Or were you looking at uh, other sporting organizations as well? I looked at uh, clubs. Basically, I would kind of keep it to five kind of areas, the the United Kingdom. I looked at clubs south of the border as well. I looked at clubs in Spain. I looked at one club in Belgium, but that wasn't a particularly, that didn't go very deep. Uh, I looked in the United States for quite a while. And then I looked at uh, at clubs in Chile, in South America. But, you know, at the end of the day, Europe is the kind of mecca of football. And although I'm, you know, we're obviously, it's an investment that's not at uh, kind of top, top. 
here there are possibilities in Europe that really make it a very exciting a very exciting platform to really get into football because there are a lot of possibilities. And when you look at, at Hibs uh, and Scottish football in particular, you know, you, you see that um, club, Scottish clubs are, are performing well. The Rangers perf- performed well in last year in, in, in the Europa League. Celtic has been in, in Europe for many, many years. You know, there's just a possibility of growing beyond just Scotland. And I, I kind of th- I thought, you know what, this is, a, this is a unique opportunity to really get into something that, that could potentially, if we do it right, be a li- little bit bigger than what it is. Ron, hearing, hearing you talk about the sorts of places you were looking, it's just fascinating because they are the markets that we end up talking about almost week in, week out. They are the exciting countries, either because they're open to external investment or just because sort of football's exciting there or there's value there, there's upside right. there. So it's just really, really interesting that, that you know, you're, that's where you're at. That's where you were thinking. But I just wonder if we could just sort of dial it back a bit because a lot of our listeners won't know much about you. And I think your story is... Is pretty fascinating. Without meaning to embarrass you, could you just give us a very potted history of, of Ronald Gordon? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the 20 second uh, brief. I, w- I was actually born in Peru. My, my heritage is Scottish. So I, yeah, my, my grandfather was actually born in England, but um, he, uh, he immigrated to Peru in 1908. Uh, he, he worked for the British Cotton Company. And he met my grandmother. I don't know what she did, a little kind of a little, maybe juke move or something, but he never left. Um, so he stayed in Peru. Um, and, and then I, um, I was born there. My father was born there. Uh, as you know, Peru is a, kind of a bit of a football crazy country. Uh, so I grew up play with football. That was a, that my passion. I went, I had a, a team that I followed when I was, a, you know, maybe four or five years old. And I followed still one of my favorite clubs, of course, second to Hibs now. But um, then my, my parents... Um, separated unfortunately and 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 fortunately for me uh my mother married an american and that was my ticket to the united states and i always uh, told my stepfather that he was my green card so i um i was able to immigrate when i was 15 to the u.s and i you know i went to school there i actually i had a little bit of an interesting because he actually was in the cia so i we had a chance to travel a little bit uh and we ended up in laos which is in southeast asia so you know for Kid born in Peru to kind of get the whole world opened up uh, and just kind of exposed to, to me uh, was just fantastic. I ended up going to school in Australia for three years because in Laos there was no school. Um, so I ended up in boarding school, uh, which was a phenomenal experience. Uh, in any event, I, um, I came back to the U.S. and uh, started a business when I was probably 28 or so in media, Spanish media. Um, and um, because I obviously came from Peru, I spoke Spanish. Um, I started my company with kind of a, it's a good story because I think it it speaks a little bit to opportunity. Uh, I started my company with 200 bucks and I sold it, you know, 30 years later for many millions of bucks. So um, it was, um, it was a great experience. And I I just love the whole entrepreneurship, you know, I just did the the creativity of business. And I I think we we ran a company that was innovative, uh, resourceful and, and creative in how it approached business. And we grew it organically. So it is. It, yeah, I had zero capital from anywhere. Everything that we made, we reinvested in the company, and were able to grow it for for many many years. And then in there's a little window there, which is an important one, is uh, NBC, which owned Telemundo, which was the network I was affiliated with, and it's one of the top media companies in the United States, which is actually owned by Comcast Sky. <laughs> so uh, ba- basically, um, asked me to to come and run their Spanish television group. So I, I left my company, kind of took a leave for three years, and I ran that. And for me, 
was a, a great experience because I, I came really from a very entrepreneurial environment with my company. It was a, a, essentially a kind of small business that was that grew kind of organically and, and very resourcefully to an organization, a, a, a corporate organization that had layers and lawyers and HR people and just a different way of functioning. So I, I like to think that when I went there, I brought a sense of entrepreneurship to NBC, which has kind of stayed, and, and certainly at Telemundo it was very stayed and very uh, kind of unimaginative in its business approach. And I brought a little bit of energy to that. At the same time, I learned process and structure and how you you kind of need to do things and, and the idea of building uh, building essentially a leadership team to run the business effectively. So uh, when I came back to my company, uh, after the three years, I began to take some of the make some of the changes, uh, which is essentially bringing in better management, better leadership, different ideas. Uh, and then, you know, five, five, six years later, I, I sold the company. I sold part of it in an auction and then the rest I sold to NBC. Well, Ron, I mean, that, I, I knew you had an interesting background and uh, you, you surprised me, even in, even in my little bit of research that I did. The, the CIA, remarkable stuff, you know, wonderful. Well, it's good. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um. <laughs> you know what? I, I mean, I, I, I tell my wife this all the time. And I go, I'm having a glass of wine and I go, what a life. Wow. <laughs> you can't really be. And it's, no, and it's, 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 yeah, there's a whole chapters ahead of you, Ron. So, so, look, I mean, I was just listening to that and I was just thinking, and, and, and this guy has bought the second team well, all right, maybe that's rude. The second city of, of Scottish football, unfashionable part of town, a club founded by Irish immigrants that not that long ago was in the second tier of Scottish football. But I was ticking off some of the things you said, five, six-year plan, entrepreneurial, leadership, building. That, when I look and think about Hibs over the last four or five years, is happening. It's obvious. Now, I was actually in Edinburgh a week or so ago. Really uh, good. On, on my holidays. And I love the place. Went up to Arthur's seat, and I pointed out to my kids, "There's Hibs." Right. You know, you right. See, that's I, a beautiful. That's a beautiful view from up there. The sunshine on Leith, and I told them the story of the song, my favourite football song, and I said, "You know, that's the, if you, if you want a sort of second team, if you want a Scottish team, that's not a bad one, right there." Yeah. Now it's got a great soul. The club has got a great soul. It's just amazing. It's just incredible. So what is and the you five-year know what? plan? I mean, as I mentioned, we just got fantastic potential well, well go on let, talk me through it because i mean leith is being ripped up by that whole tram development the area is getting really fashionable are you gonna are you gonna take on celtic and rangers properly i guess that is the big well, let's question go, let's go one step at a time you know i mean I, I think it's a little bit ambitious for us to think that way but you know obviously we if you're in sports you cannot lack ambition i mean i just i don't think you would ever want to get in sports and not have ambition you know we're we're improving the team you know i i, I guess both I've done both things. I came in originally just with the business. I looked at the business. I saw a lot of opportunity to improve the business. Ultimately, the you know to me the the money, the resources show up on the field. So if you look at any league in the world, the top clubs are the ones with the most money. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, that's the way it, it goes. So I, I thought it was very important for Hips to look at its business model and try to improve it. I think probably one, one of the things I'm most excited about is our new CEO Ben Kensel, who just came from Norwich. I mean, I just I'm very excited. He's only been here for three weeks. He, he's probably got so many things going on, but you know he brings experience. He brings a depth. And and a pedigree in football uh, that I think Hibs could absolutely benefit from. And, and I, hopefully this is going to be a phenomenal experience for him from an entrepreneurial perspective and a management perspective and a leadership perspective. And then, you know, on the football side, you know, kind of just bringing, a, a re refocusing the club a little bit with Jack Ross, a manager that I think represents the club extremely well, is very thoughtful about what he does. He, I think, buys into kind of the vision and 
and the understanding that everything needs to make sense, right? So it's um, so I think building those building blocks are in, are in place, um, and you know we're getting positive results. I think we're getting positive results on the business side, and we're getting positive results on the football side. I mean, last year we finished third. You know, it, it was um, you know, it, it was I think the best the best result the club has had in 17 years, something like that. Uh, we went to uh, the semifinal and, and the final of the semifinal of the League Cup, and and you know it was disappointment to to lose the the, the Scottish Cup, but um, but you know we were there, so we, we're knocking on the door. And let's not forget, Ronald. Yeah, it, it has it has been done before this. You know, my formative football years were in the 1980s, and that wasn't a Rangers Celtic dominated landscape in Scottish football then with Aberdeen and Dundee United. Now they they were two clubs who at the time were incredibly lucky to have two two incredibly talented managers in Jim McLean and, and, and Alex Ferguson. So has the landscape moved on so far financially that you can't get back to that competition of the 80s? Or is it a little bit what you were saying then, Ron, about down to personnel? down to the people that you have and putting those people in place and then allowing them to flourish. I mean, I, I operate a little bit that way, right? Coming from an entrepreneurial background, you, you entrepreneurs kind of create the environment, set the expectation, uh, the culture at the club of what, what we are trying to achieve. And I think on the business side, we're, we're doing that and bringing somebody in like Ben is going to help us do that. I mean, I can tell you, despite COVID, which, you know, Scotland is a highly dependent, gate-dependent football environment, right? I mean, this is 50%, 45-50% of the revenues of all clubs come from the gate. And so when you don't have a gate, it becomes very, very problematic. So it was a difficult year. But despite that, on the business side, we're making progress and generating additional revenues that we can reinvest in the club. On the football side, uh, we're, you know, we've I mean, we've changed the complexity of the squad. It's a much younger squad. We went, we, we had older players, journeyman players, all great guys and phenomenal. But, you know, there's really not a lot of upside on that. So what we've done is the average age of the club when I came in uh, starting 11 was 28 and a half, which is old, really. And, uh, and so we are now at 25, maybe at 25 and a half, something like that. With maybe and Jack buys into this because you know he sees the he sees what we need to be doing, and you know we have I, I think right now the starting lineup four players five players who are twenty two or under. This is good for Hibs. It's a, you know we're a development club. We're a club that needs to be setting the tone. Clubs like like you know we can't compete with the same kind of level of signing that a that a Rangers or a Celtic can. So we need to we need to be resourceful and find the right opportunities in terms of of signings. And does that come down to analytics? Because we have spoken to a lot of American investors over the last 12 months on this on this podcast. And one of the first things that so many of them seem to do when taking over a club is rip either either rip up or or actually introduce, depending on the level of the club, an analytics department for their recruitment. And we're not just talking actually from player recruitment, we're talking coaching recruitment, managerial recruitment, any type of recruitment. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we have a, we have an analytical department, an analytics department. That I think is small, but very good. Uh, and we use it to evaluate players and coaches as well. You know, so it, it, I think it's kind of a tool that you need in modern football uh, because data at the end of the day gives you truth. There's the, there's the intangible, right? There's the gut, the, the perception, 
things like, you know, desire and things like that, those elements are not going to come through in the data. But there's an indicator there. And I think it would be, I think modern clubs probably need to look at data and, you know, to, to, to progress. It needs to be one of your tools to recruit. I mean, it, it, it's tricky, but I, I think, you know, you need to do that. But, you know, you can't, I, I personally don't think uh, that you, 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 know, you can't rely 100% on data because then it just becomes, you let the computer pick your team. And I don't think we want to do that, but it needs to be part of the, the process. Ron, I was, I was just really interested by your answer on, on recruitment and then the squad, how you've made it younger and, the, the, you know, Hib sort of its place being a development club. I've got a, sort of a two-part question to ask you. One, your squad is still very Scottish, which is, which is no bad thing. You're a Scottish club. You know, given your background and your sort of, you know, you, I think the Spanish language is, is, is a fantastic tool and a advan- potential advantage for your club, do you see the international market do you see sort of a, a more cosmopolitan, diverse hip squad going forward? And then um, I also just, sort of, as I said, just doing a bit of research on 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 hips. You appear to be you, you've not backed some offers for some players. Um, Kevin Nisbet was it just Doig? You know that that to me seems different. You know, once upon a time, Scottish clubs could have been raided, and particularly clubs in sort of the hips bracket would lose talent. You've said no. Are those two things connected anyway? And I and and I, and I wondered if I wondered if Ben Cancel was sort of a part of that as well. You know, the, the Norwich model. You know, let's 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 grow our talent. Let's hold on to what we've got until we're re- until we're ready to sell it. Well, I mean, I think you have to start that. I mean, number one for us is to be competitive. So we want to put a, a good product on the pitch. I do think that there's been a, a tendency, certainly at Hibs and in Scottish football in general, to to you know you. you I think some bigger clubs come and nick players at a very low value. Uh, and I, and I just, you know, I, I don't think the club, what I do like about where we sit is we don't have to sell anybody. We're not, you know, we're not in a situation where we just absolutely have to move somebody. So priority number one is to be competitive. And, and that to me means, you know, holding on to some of the players, growing them, developing them so that they're at the, they're, they're at their premium when the right time comes to move them on. And I think, you know, obviously the club is the most important to me, but I also have to respect the, the needs and desires of the players. Because I, the way I see this, players have a 10, 15-year window when they can generate the most money for their career. Uh, and we have to complement that. We can't really get in the way of that. So it's not fair to a player to say, no, you, you, know, you, 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 you can't go down to the championship. They're going to pay you twice the money, but we have a contract and you can't move. So we need to figure out a way that makes sense for the club to continue to progress, uh, hold on to its talent so that we can compete. Yeah, I'd like to think that Hibs at some point, and it is now, in my opinion, is a great stepping stone club for young Scottish talent. You know, you come to Hibs, your chances of playing are much, much higher, in my opinion, than if you go to a Celtic or a Rangers, where, you know, they they have the, the deep pockets, they can bring the talent that they want. And so, unfortunately, you get blocked. You, you, you get blocked by their, their transfer play. And so, you know, at Hibs, you know, if we bring you, I, I, I really would like us to have, can't guarantee that, and, but, but I'd like us to have the mentality that you come to Hibs, you're going to get a fair shot to make the first team. So that's, that's point number one. And your second point, or it was your first point about internationalizing the, the club. I mean, I agree with that 100% as well. And you know, one of the things I did when I first arrived at HIB is put together a five-year strategic plan, basically, which included, you know, we're in the capital of Scotland. Football is a global game. It's a, it's, and I, I found that the club was very insular. It, it looked in the same pot as everybody else for players. And I think 
the game is a is a world game and and the best clubs get players from everywhere to complement and i think personally we bring really good players from wherever we can find them it's going to make make scottish players better and i think you know, this is a theory that i have i don't know if it's it's valid but i but i think there's some merit to it uh, in in england you know england is producing incredibly young very talented very good football players right now but you know i don't see the epl as an english league it's a world league it's a world league it's the the world's top league so if you're an english kid living in leicester and you want to play for the foxes you compete with people from uruguay ghana chile brazil everywhere you you better be really really good and and i think that's elevated the caliber of player which i you know scotland is a ways off but i hope that we can do that kind of thing where it's and it's just not not a whole bunch of people but just bring some talent that's going to enrich uh, and improve the caliber of the product and and the quality of the play is it um hard to to sell or market a club internationally that doesn't have the name of the city in its title so if i if i look at a map of new york i'll go oh New York Giants, great. Or if I go anywhere, I mean, I mean, this is a cliche, but it does happen. You go anywhere in the world and say you're from Manchester. People tend to the first thing people tend to go is Manchester United. Although increasingly, they might not go Manchester City. And and I noticed Thomas Tuchel on Sunday pre-match uh, for the Arsenal game. He had a Chelsea uh, cap on, but it also said in very little letters underneath it, London. I wonder, from an American perspective, you take over a club in an unbelievable city a beautiful city as you say the, the capital of scotland but obviously a lot of the international audience won't link hibs with edinburgh, edinburgh. no you, you, it's, a, it's a valid point one of the things i love is our crest you know the crest that hibs has it's hibernian in edinburgh and um it's kind of one of the it's a little bit like the manchester united crest and these kind of crests are going to be kind of eternal right the, the, the crest is just perfect and I think that's, you know, we are of the two clubs in Edinburgh. We're the only one that says Edinburgh in our crest, which I think, okay, this is a positive for the reasons that you just pointed out. But you're right. I mean, not many people know Hibs that it's from Edinburgh. And I guess that's part of our, you know, marketing play that we need to kind of promote it as the club. And, you know, we position the club as this is our city, as the Edinburgh club. Now, granted, it's not that we, we, we recognize that we have a rival across the way, but, you know, we've, you have to be a little bit bold in how you approach this. And um, I think kind of taking a, a, a claim and a stake that we this is our city and Edinburgh is our city is I, I think part of that process, right? So um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I, the crest does help us a little bit because it says Edinburgh right there in big, bold letters. But it's, um, I mean, what can you do? I mean, you can't change, Hibernian is Hibernian no. and it's been Hibernian for 150 years yeah. almost. So it's it's a beautiful thing. I, I, that, that really, what, it wasn't a trick question to, to get you into whether you're going to change the name. I just think it's really, I just think it's, it's really interesting, maybe the extra challenges of taking on a, a team in whatever sport that doesn't necessarily have the... The, the city and the title. A, a, a final one from me, I suppose. Everything you, and I, I've asked this to, to a couple of other owners as well, and it's particularly relevant with this podcast. We're going to look at a couple of hostile takeovers, well, one hostile takeover and the how you take over a football club and win the fans over. How much did you need to get the fans on side at, at the start? Or, or was that a given when you, you came in? Where did that come in your sort of list of priorities when taking over the football club. I mean, it's priority one, I think, in the sense that the most significant stakeholder in the club is the fan, the supporter. And so it was, I think, important for me to give them comfort that I was 
a person with good intentions, totally dedicated to the club and committed to the club. You know, I hope that they've seen in the last two years that I've been here uh, that I'm, you know, I'm 150% invested in the club and its success and its growth. I um, I think it's very, very important. I mean, there are plenty of stakeholders in a football club, you know, whether it's the players, the, the staff, the coaching, everybody, the academy, all, all these stakeholders. But the most important stakeholder is the supporter base. Uh, and I I think we, we've gone to a significant measure to, to make sure that they, they, they know that we're, you know, we're absolutely committed to, to the club and its well-being. We need to run a, a successful business. I mean, to me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's super important that we, that we do that. But, uh, but beyond that, you know, the number one priority is the club. No, nobody has any agenda that is not the, the success of the club. We, we here in the South are, are uh, quite used to seeing Scottish football having debates about its structure, 12, 14, split teams, B teams, constantly sort of trying to work out ways to split the cake. I understand there's a debate going on right now. We, I, I swear I've been through two or three of these that, that I think I might have reported on from afar. Where do you think that's going? What, what, is, the, what is the best format for, for Scottish football? Is, is there ever going to be a best? Does it, does it constantly change for every five, ten years? Well, I mean, there's... There's certainly debate, you know, as to what is the right format, and 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 you know we're we're discussing it. There's a group of uh, owners and uh, chairmen and clubs that are looking at different ideas, and and it's certainly I you know I'm a big proponent of the league. We, we the league at the end of the day, that maybe that's coming a little bit from an American perspective. Um, you know, the league at the end of the day is also a business unit. It needs to be a successful business unit. It needs to promote the game and needs to grow the game. Uh, so I'm a big, big fan of making the league stronger. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're doing a little, I'm kind of chairing a little bit of, or heading a little bit of work around the commercial uh, structure and investment of the league. So that's important. Um, and also the brand, you know, the, the, the Scottish game to me is an exciting league. I mean, right now, you know, we have Celtic, Rangers, Aberdeen, Hibs, Hearts, Dundee, Dundee United. These are top, top clubs in, in the premiership this year. So it's an exciting league, right? I, I like to think of it as the most exciting small league in Europe. It's competitive. It's It's got a lot of energy to it. You're, you're not going to find more passionate fans than Scottish fans. So it's uh, it's it's fantastic. So we need to capitalize on that um, and just really project the league as a just a terrific place uh, for you to come and enjoy football. And if you're a player, a terrific league for you to come and play at so that you can position yourself to go to bigger and better places in your career. So that's work that needs to happen, I think, conceptually around the league. The structure, I, I don't really, in my opinion, and I, many people in, in, everybody in the league has already heard this from me anyway. We, we do have a lot of teams. It's a very big league. I mean, because the SPFL is 42, 42 teams. It's, that's, that's huge for a country of five and a half million people. That's a lot of teams. I, and, and so I, my, my sense is that somewhere in the middle of that, uh, maybe 24 or something like that, is really where... There, you can still keep the pyramid and everything going, but perhaps there's a little bit more focus on the full-time professional clubs that can really grow the game. Because ultimately, whatever happens at the top of the pyramid is going to trickle down uh, into the smaller clubs. Um, and, you know, you, you can still keep all the payments and residuals coming down. So that is a debate that we probably need to have and just see if it makes sense to look at a structure that essentially gives focus to growing and strengthening the product and the league. That would be, to me, an important 
first step. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your insight this morning. It's uh, it's much appreciated. Wish you well for the season, Rob. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Mark. Thank you very much, Matt. Take care. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. move on down to League Two in England now in a club that aren't having a good time of things. Rochdale recently found themselves embroiled in a battle for ownership of the club in the face of an attempted hostile takeover by two businessmen. The Rochdale chairman, Simon Gage, has made no secret of his distaste for the attempted takeover and Simon uh, joins us now. Just bring us up to speed, Simon, first of all, on the latest developments. So the latest is we've had a group of I mean, I'm even reluctant to call them investors because they're not investing in the club. I guess they're investing in shares in the club that have, without the club's knowledge initially, been approaching shareholders of the club to buy their shares. It's perhaps easier to say how a club's normally bought in that an investor would approach the club, talk about what their plans are, be quite upfront, explain where the money's coming from directors of that company then can make a choice whether they want to proceed or not if you want to proceed you'll then approach the EFL and say we've got these people wanting to buy a majority share in the club or over a 30 percent share in the club which under EFL definitions means they have control of the club and um, submit an owners and directors test and wait for them to pass that and then you've come to some arrangement how the shares are going to be transferred etc and put it to your shareholders so what's happened in this case is that they've tried to do the share purchase before they've got the EFL permissions, if you like, to proceed. So that's then been submitted. The EFL have started an investigation into them because it's not, there's a lot of question marks over the whole affair and they've not wanted to participate in that investigation. So have um, pulled out of the process. But even that's not simple because although they haven't actually purchased any shares in that the share transfer forms been submitted to the club and we've put their, on them on the share register, I believe they've got legal documents in place that at least give them powers over the shares. But, but we've not seen any of that. So um, I think that's the latest situation that we're in, as I understand it. And I suppose to strip it back into even more ba- basic terms for people then, the people who were looking at taking over the club literally got a list of shareholders in Rochdale and started ringing them up to see if they could buy their shares off them yeah we're not sure exactly what process that that took but um we're a bit unusual in that we haven't got one or two big shareholders well we've got a few big shareholders but there's about 300 over 350 shareholders in the club of which five or six hold quite a chunk of them to get towards 50 percent so what they've done they've, they've approached those five or six offered to buy their shares at above the market rate and um, proceeded that way. We're obviously disappointed that a lot of these people that are apparently selling 
have been quite closely affiliated and their families affiliated to the clubs for quite a long time and, and didn't choose to give the club the option of buying those shares first, but went ahead with these private deals. So, I mean, just, um, just for, for our listeners who, who, who might be hearing this story for the first time, is it is a genuinely shocking story. And I think, as, as Mark framed it, it, for me, it's a cautionary tale. This, this could happen to you. I know there's some unusual things about Rochdale, as you mentioned, in its ownership. Rochdale, the, the, the home of the cooperative movement and all that. Uh, I think its history is really interesting. Can you just sort of expl- set the scene as, as, as best you can? Just explain a little bit about Rochdale. I mean, they were, you know, a bit of a yo-yo club. Relegate, you know, relegated last season. You know where your situation is just outside Manchester. You, but you're you're a much bigger place than I think many people would would realise. Yeah, we're, um, we're we're north of Manchester, but sort of wedged between Bury and the um, Pennines, really. So there's Oldham nearby, there's Bolton nearby, Premiership teams. We've got United, City. It's there's a lot of football here, so a lot of competition it's got over two hundred thousand residents rochdale so there's a potential there for us to um try and tap into that to that market there's been a few changes over the club over the um last year or so a lot of upheaval as you said the managers left we've got three new board members on including myself that joined in um june and the mandate from the majority of the shareholders then was that we want to build a sustainable club that can stand on its own two feet. We've got a very passionate supporters. You've only got to look at non-official websites and the amount of work that goes in from people within the club. And we want to build the club as a, as a hub of the community. And I've spoken a lot to the local MP and we've spoken to councillors about this. We're very much into lo- using local businesses to supply our catering, drinks, whatever goes on with the club and really making it a heart of the community. Like many clubs, we've got a community trust that are out there getting people in and doing work in schools and, and things. So that's how we see ourselves. We don't have any illusions of grandeur, if you like, that we're going to go and be in the premiership with somebody putting millions of pounds in, in five or six years. We, we don't want that. We're, we're happy for the success that we get. We want to, work in a sustainable manner, get back into League One, that's where we think our natural level is, and, and perhaps dream of getting into the Championship. But uh, everyone's very realistic here. And the club, they're passionate about. You, you come and it's a community and people know everybody and it's mm. a very close-knit. And that's what I think clubs at our level are about. Yeah. So so you're painting your picture that I completely understand and, have, and I've been to Rochdale and it makes complete sense. And, and this club... For some bizarre reason that I don't think anyone has quite fathomed yet, this year has been the subject of a hostile takeover by a bloke from Essex. Nothing wrong with blokes from Essex. I'm from Essex. Uh, a car dealer from Workshop, if I've got that right. There's a there's a cast of other guys who I've, I haven't quite worked out what they're up to and why they're about. Trying to buy you in a very aggressive way for reasons that are unclear. Have, you know, you've been through this. You've been there've been big meetings. People have been booted off the board. The EFL have got involved. There's been a unbelievable exchange around these guys. Had they started the ODT, the owners and directors process, or not? Letters going backwards and forwards. You name it. What did they want? Why Rochdale? What what were they trying to do? So, the the club has to submit submit an owners and directors test on behalf of these people so so we met them once we've met them i've met them on two occasions and literally before we submit that we try and do our own due diligence and find out 
what is going on. So the very question you've asked there is, is what we started to ask. And why does somebody from Essex and somebody from Worksop want to buy Rochdale Football Club? Now, the, the answer we got to that question is because we want somewhere to go and have a few beers on a Saturday afternoon and be and bring be the first person to bring a Rottweiler dog to watch the match. It doesn't stack up in a business sense. You're never going to make a fortune out of Rochdale Football Club. It's a battle to be sustainable. We have to be very smart in the way we operate to be sustainable. So I can't understand the whole financial aspect of it, whether they just wanted a football club and to pile debt on the club. We asked where funds were coming from. Absolutely no answer there. There's very little digital footprint on any of the characters trying to buy the club. Did they genuinely give you no business reason or sporting reason for wanting to be involved in Rochdale? I mean, they literally said, we want to come and have a few beers, watch a football match and bring a dog. Literally, yes. In a meeting, genuinely, in a meeting with you. Genuinely, in a meeting, that's as much information on the plans to the club we got. There were little talks about, we're going to pump this amount of money in and up the playing budget by... 300,000 and and things like this. But even that rings alarm bells to us because there's plenty of examples of clubs that as soon as you start paying more on wages and you've got income coming in, you suddenly become unsustainable and you're relying on handouts forever. We don't want to go down that road. We want to, we want to be sustainable and because as soon as those handouts dry up or the club's laden with debt, we're in trouble and, and that's not a road we want to go down. But we had we had no explanation whatsoever. It's bizarre. We've spoken to so many people on this podcast who have invested in a whole variety of of, of sporting and for, in the main football clubs. Whether that be, you know, from Plymouth to Barnsley to we've spoken to Ron Gordon today on on investing in in Hibs. And and one of the questions for all of them at the start is: Are people immediately suspicious of you when you try to take over that club because your club is not Chelsea or Arsenal or whoever it may be? So, if anybody was coming to invest or try to take over Rochdale, would your would your default position be at the start suspicion? Well, I think it would be suspicion because unless somebody comes up with a very good business plan, I struggle to see how you're ever going to make a fortune out of the club. We want to do a share issue in the club where myself, fellow directors will buy shares, fans will buy shares. Now, we're all totally realistic here. We don't ever expect to return on the money that we're putting in. It's a um, emotional, passionate investment. And, and that's what you go into clubs for. Now, there's been some good owners that have, have bought clubs and would love that. But you need to have the conversation that, People are being realistic about what they want to get out of the club. And I think that starts off by having doing the process in the way that I outlined at the start of this conversation, fully understanding what their plans are for the club. The thing that I'm really passionate about is being open and transparent with fans because they are the club. And I think Rochdale, more than any other clubs, proved that over the last um, few weeks. And if you can bring everyone with you and, and get everyone to buy in, then it's it's worth talking and people do invest in clubs and I'm sure they don't get money back out of it for the right reasons, but, but that's the kind of investment that I'd expect probably. When the Athletic contacted the people who were who trying to take over the club, Simon, they said 
uh, we'd already done a lot of work and due diligence. We saw it as a great opportunity to get involved with the club that on the face of things was pretty well run with very little debt in a good location. Our longer term aims are to establish the club in League One and potentially the championship to generate more revenues for the club to invest in better players and play entertaining football and compete against the top teams in the division. That's what they that's what they said to us, but they didn't say any of that to you. They said they wanted to invest in the playing budget and get us into the championship. Yes. How that translates then into I mean it's the detail then. How does that translate into increasing more revenues? Well, we've we've just been in League One and we know it's a struggle there. I've got to say I've only been on the board since June and I've looked back through all the board meetings for the previous few months. And although there may have been the odds conversation with with this consortium about buying the club they clearly weren't the preferred bidder and there's, there's been very little conversation with them recorded in the meantime so I don't know where details plannings come from that, that's another question probably. Simon just to, just to sort of throw it ahead then I mean it does appear that these guys have backed off they've said they've reluctantly withdrawn the EFL have, I think I think we have to give the EFL credit here they they got onto this one quite early and they actually started sort of almost telling the club that there, there are issues with some of the things the club is saying on behalf of these guys about the process. For example, you know, the owners and directors test. Has it, has it actually been initiated? Have they been in to see us? You know, have the, the shares actually changed hands? Sort of quite complicated sort of legal issues. But it does appear to me from the outside anyway that the EFL have done their job in this case. But it was still a close run thing, right? And it's not quite over because there is now some uncertainty. This group, who are called Morton House, claim, and it, it does appear that they, there is some some truth to this, that they effectively have 40% of Rochdale shares. So, you know, what happens to those shares? How do you divest them? They want their money back. Yeah, but, you know, okay. Did money actually change hands? So there's there's still some bits to work out. My question really is, what can we learn from this? What can football learn from this? Lots of talk about regulation, talk about licensing systems. What do you think, having been through this process and you're kind of still in it, what, what's the kind of key message, key takeaway for football? Well, firstly, I think we've all seen the horror stories in football and we all have opinions of what the EFL could have done better in the past. But I think on this case, we we have the odd criticism of a, of the process maybe, but... I think looking at it as a whole, they've done their job very well here and they haven't been steamrolled in, which I think is probably how the people trying to buy the club try to do it. They just try to steamroller in. They were telling everybody they got 50% of the shares. It was a done deal. We ourselves got bought into that at one stage, hence why we had the meetings with them. But they they went through the process. Now, I think the way forward to stop it going on this there needs to be a clear process on how you go about buying a football club well it just, just does not work the same as other businesses because what saved us here because if we wouldn't have been a football club they could easily have bought 50 percent of the shares and, and taken over the club but we have to as a club we have to abide by the efl rules so if they had submitted submitted um share transfer form to us as a board the legal advice to us was you must not sign that because you'll be in breach of EFL rules and then that'll bring us under a whole disciplinary process. And it's also the rules are there for individuals as well. They're not allowed to buy a football club without going through the EFL process. So I guess the rules are there. I think it can perhaps just be 
a little bit clearer for potential investors on how they go about doing it. So, so you changed the rules for buying shares in football in football clubs under under the EFL ownership banner. Yeah, because we, as a as a board of directors, with our duty is to the proper running of the football club. So, if somebody is trying to buy over thirty percent of shares in the club, or has bought over thirty percent shares of the club, and we authorise that we're in breach of EFL rules because if they haven't got an owners and directors test passed, because that is the rule you have to do it. And that would put the club at a serious breach. Then it's the same rule for individuals. They, sh- they shouldn't go and buy these shares without having passed the test. But that's obviously happened in this case. As far as I'm aware, I stress again, I've not seen one bit of documentation. I've only gone off of what the EFL have told me they've seen. It's on the one hand interesting and on the other hand quite confusing, I think, for for people. Uh, on, And it is is very apt, I think, it, that lots of football clubs could, could be vulnerable to this kind of process. If I wanted to buy shares in Rochdale today, could I? Um, well, we don't have any shares to sell as a club at the moment. They're all taken, they're all bought. But you could approach any private shareholder in the club and say... Can I do a transaction for your shares? You do a private transaction. You then submit the share transfer form to the board. And it's normally a formality that we approve that. There's no reason not to do it. Once you go over, I believe it's 10% as an individual, the FL then start looking at you. And once you go over 30%, in their definition, you are then taking ownership of the club. So you then have to go into a whole load of new Kafka is proving where future incomes, future financial um, plans, and there's a whole level of scrutiny that it, it ramps up to once you're over that 30%. So if, you, if you're wanting to buy 30% of the club, you need to pass all that before you can proceed with your purchase. And then the, the other part of that is you, you mentioned that you will do another share issue. Does that not leave you susceptible to the same issues that you've just had to deal with? Well... The issues that we're having to deal with at the moment are that we have certain shareholders that hold quite a high percentage of the shares in the club. So I'm presuming as they've just wanted to sell their shares, and I don't know the legal status of these shares, and Morton House have told us they're pulling out of the process, so they can't surely be interested in buying any more shares. By doing a share issue, we're able to water down those percentages Mm. and protect us to a certain degree. And, and, you, um, and you'll presumably you'll limit the amount that any one person can buy, right? Yeah, we're, we're having legal talks on how we can legally, within the articles of our club, be able to do that. But that's what we'd like to do. Yes, so we'd like to have a smaller amount of shares spread out amongst a larger amount of people, so nobody, five or six people, can't get together to control the club. Really, you want twenty people, and in fact, our supporters trust uh, own or in the process of owning over 10% of um, the club as it is. And, and that's the, we're keen for them to get a higher percentage and being the home of the cooperative here in Rochdale, they've got a, cooper- a cooperative of shareholders over 50% now, just over 50% that they want to work together and, um, and control the club via supporters trust. And we, we have a representative from them, a very active representative from them on the board as well. And, and that's how we see our club running really though that's not to say if we had some fantastic investor that comes in and and wants to invest in the club we wouldn't look at that but we'd look at it as 
as a club and the whole shareholders and, and being open and transparent about that process. We will leave it there, Simon. Thank you very much for uh, for taking us through what is a very, very uh, complicated uh, story. But thank you very much. No, thanks very much. So let's finish the pod with Swindon Town, a club who've had their own ownership battles and financial worries in recent times, but they are now hopeful of moving towards a brighter future. Matt caught up with their newly appointed CEO, Rob Angus, recently to find out what it's like to go from working for the Nationwide Bank to running a League Two football club. So, Rob, um, I don't really know where to start with you because... um, I don't mean you, I mean your club. Swindon Town, for, for people who haven't been following, have been through the mixer, I think it would be fair to say. Um, you know, promotion, relegation, I mean, that happens, right? That's that's not that unusual. I think what's unusual, and I would say almost unprecedented, is, is kind of how you went up and then really how you've come down and in the state that you have come down and all the things that have been going on off the field. There's a there's a hell of a lot to sort of get through there. So, so Rob, you have just started as chief exec you were on you were, you, were, you were very involved in the trust um i think you're probably working two jobs at the moment as you finish your gardening leave at one job and and throw yourself into the club to those who haven't been following what has the last six months been like for swindon town what's been going on well uh, thanks matt and 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 it's great to great to be on here so obviously lots been going on so obviously there's been the the legal battle between the Axis Group, Clem Morfuni and uh, Lee Power in terms of the ownership of the club. That's been going on for some months now and um, all related to the original uh, Michael Standing versus Lee Power case in terms of who owns Swindon Town Football Club. Through that legal process uh, where Lee Power was looking to sell the football club, Clem Morfuni was able to take control of the club, albeit because um, he had preemption rights from the fact he was a previously a minority shareholder. And those preemption rights were exercised when Lee Power looked to sell to uh, another third party called Abel, who we still know very little about. So that sale has now uh, progressed. And, and back 12 days ago now, Clem Wolfini took, took, took charge of Sundertown Football Club and is now the 100% sole, sole owner of Sundertown Football Club. Um, and, and Clem, you know, asked me to be the CEO of Sundertown Football Club, which something that, you know, took me back a bit, but very excited to... Um, to, to take that opportunity um, on, which is, you know, quite a big shock and a change from working at Nationwide for over 25 years, you know, but I've got a lot of, you know, senior executive experience at Nationwide in different roles, coupled with my work on the Supporters Trust and uh, following the likes of the Athletic and the Price of Football. Hopefully I've, I've got some skills and experience that can, that, that can help. And uh, I, I was also, you know, really keen to sort of have the opportunity to work with Clem to deliver the engagement, the transparency and openness that, 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 He's promised the Swindon fans and to build the club back up. But we inherited a, a position where the the staff and and the players hadn't been paid. They, you know, the the PFA and the EFL ensured that they got sixty percent of June's wages, but they, you know, weren't looking like they were going to get paid anything more than that. So bills hadn't been paid, whether that's the HMRC or the the, the local council for the rent or anything else really. Um, you know, relatively uh, young and skeleton staff degree who hadn't had any leadership for a number of months really but we're doing a fantastic job without getting paid um, and lots and lots to do before the start of the season that's even before we get to the fact that there was about five or six professional players contracted players turning up for training 
uh, and being managed, you know, again without pay by the goalkeeping coach Steve Mildenhall and the uh, Andre Teens Academy coach Lee Peacock. Let me just jump in there, Rob, because there's there's, there's a lot there's a lot already just to sort of unpick mm. and explain. So, just to just to just to set the scene, right? So, the team's relegated. Had, had a bad campaign last year. Wages hadn't been paid. Rent hadn't been paid. Tax hadn't been paid. No manager. A manager had come and gone very, very quickly. Um, a lot of the staff had gone. There was a legal, at least two legal disputes about ownership of the club. And it was looking a few weeks ago as though Swindon could be in a sort of berry type situation where would you be allowed to start the season? Because the EFL would just not have had the confidence that you could finish the season. So that, that, so that, that, that really sort of sets the scene as of a few weeks ago. And some remarkable things have, have happened quite quickly. Good things. This is, this is, I think, a good news story. We don't do any of those on the Business Sport podcast, but, but it is. But you said a lot of names there. So let's just pick, unpick some of these names. So, so Lee Power, just remind me if I get the dates wrong, bought the club in about 2013. Former player, has had involvement with some other clubs before. Yeah, an absentee owner, increasingly distant from the club. Tried to sell it. In the process of selling it, we discovered that he'd had a silent partner all along. Michael Standing, who's a football agent, uh, who's Gareth Barry's agent. And it all came out in this court case that, hold on a minute, was Michael Standing a 50% owner of Swindon? Was Gareth Barry a 50% owner of Swindon? First legal dispute. And then the next name you mentioned was Claymore Thune, I think. And Claymore Thune is a, uh, a former plumber, runs a really successful construction company in Australia and the States and Thailand. And he has been your saviour, really, in many ways. He, he has successfully bought the club. It, it, took, it was a real job doing it. But those, I think, the main ones. Michael Standing, this, this, this football agent who is in, continues to be in dispute with Lee Power about the last few years of who's been paying what and who, who, owes, who owes who what. Lee Power, who uh, has gone to ground, has lost control of the club, and Claymore Thune. So, so, so tell us a bit more then about Lee Power and how his reign sort of unravelled. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, Lee Power took control of the club back in 2014, following a court case of Jed McCrory. The, the Swindon fans lost faith in Lee Power over a number of years through really the lack of transparency, openness and, and engagement. Um, his sort of reign started to unravel really when, if you like, the, the investors he brought in, like Claremont Thune, became a sponsor and then in, in invested, you know, over a million pounds to take him on their minority shareholding, um, started to work out that he wasn't getting the transparency as to where his money was going. He wasn't getting his shares transferred across despite transferring the money. Uh, he wasn't aware of, uh, of Michael Standing's involvement and Michael Standing wasn't involved in, aware of Clem's involvement. And therefore, you know, both parties fell out with with Lee Power and legal action commenced. Uh, and that, as we said, that legal action continues in terms of Michael Standing's claim for 50% um, of, uh, well, for a lot of money that he's due from Lee Power. And there's a training ground that Lee Power has purchased as well, or proposed training ground and housing development that that, that is still a legal dispute in that respect. Um, but Clem Morfini made it clear that if the club was looking to be sold, he would he would be able, he would want to take it on and take on the majority shareholding. Lee Power tried to sell the club to a third party, able, but because Claremont Fooney as an existing shareholder had preemption rights, so he was able to match any offer from a third party. And if he was able to match that and accept it, then his rights take over. 
the courts confirmed that was a valid and legal process and therefore the uh, the ownership of the club has been successfully transferred away from Lee Power and to Fenwell Thuny, who inherits the club, takes it on, but also takes on the debts and the issues that are left there to be resolved. So it is a positive story. There is a new dawn uh, and a new owner in Fenwell Thuny who is you know, committed to openness, transparency and engagement and a lot of positivity around uh, the town and the future of the club. We have avoided that very situation, uh, but there is a lot to do. There's a lot of debts to sort out. There's a team to build on the pitch. There's a you know, a club to rebuild off the pitch. But, you know, we, we, we're working at breakneck speed to do that. Um, I mean, I, I completely agree with, with um, the positivity there. I, I, I've, you know, we've, we did a big piece a week or so ago. You were very helpful with it. And I got the chance to talk to Clem, who's a really interesting guy, engaging character. I think he, I think he really gets and, and, and loves football. I, I worry, though, that he might not realise how big these jobs are. And how difficult they are. So many well-intentioned people have got involved in in British football, European football, and just and just found it difficult. Do you have you have you had those sort of conversations with him? Is is he is he in it for the long haul? Is he is he ready? Is he ready? Because at the moment he can do no wrong, right? What happens if yeah. this is another bad year? What happens? Because I mean, there's you're starting you're starting in such a, such disarray. It, it, you'll do well to stay up. I don't, I don't want. I don't want to depress you, but that, in, in many ways, that 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 would be a triumph. Is, is Clem ready for that? Yeah, no, absolutely not. So, so Clem is very much committed to this being a long-term project, uh, and we've talked about that. And we talked this. This is you know a, almost a ten-year project to sort of you know stabilise the club, move it forward, and you know the aim really to get it in into the championship over that ten-year period of time. But this year is all going to be about stabilising the club off the pitch stabilising the club uh, on the pitch as well. As you say, we start with a very limited number of contracted players. Um, we've got the head coach in now. We're building that up, but we're we're behind on the pitch from a number of the competitors who have had a proper pre-season. So it is going to be a struggle this year. We've tried to manage expectation with the fan base on that, on that side that says, you know, this year you need to recognise that it's going to be stabilising both on and off the pitch. And then from next season, we can build... And we can look at things such as uh, trying to challenge for for promotion and to take the club forwards. So Clem is well aware of that and well aware of the long term nature of the project. One of the things we need to make really clear to the to the Swindon Town fans and community, as well as you know, Clem is taking quite a significant personal risk here. To your point of taking the club on, the debts on, he can't do it all himself. He's already invested nearly a seven figure fund sum to deal with some of the historic debts and legacy. We now need the Swindon Town fans and community to buy season tickets, to buy match day tickets, to buy shirts, to get the cash flow coming in so that we can stabilise this club, enable us to invest in the squad, pay back a number of the creditors, you know, that 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 we due, that we're due to that we're due to pay and take this foot club forward. So it has to be a partnership. It can't be all on Clem's shoulders. It has to be the Swindon Town fan base and community working together with Clem to take the club forwards. Well, we have um, we have listeners all over the place. You know, the Athletic, as as you know, we're starting in the state, so we have we have we generally have listeners, um, you know, in all in all kinds of corners of the globe. Can you can you explain Swindon to 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 people who are who are sort of unaware of, of where you sit in in the pyramid and where you where you sit in the UK really and. And, and and feel free feel free to wax lyrical about your about about you know how how big a club you could be. Yeah, absolutely. So Swindon Town, you know, Swindon is a place. It's a it's about an hour west of London. 
you know, on the on the on the main line sort of train services um, out of out of Paddington. Uh, it's on the uh, the start of the West Country, really. It's in Wiltshire. It's the only professional club in Wiltshire. It's got a population in the borough of around about a quarter of a million people, so two hundred fifty thousand people. Has a catchment area of of much larger than that because really you could draw a thirty mile right radius around Swindon. There's a real professional football club into Gloucestershire, Oxfordshire, Berkshire, and the whole of Wiltshire. So it's got huge potential. It's a 142-years-old club. It founded in 1879. Two sort of real big uh, moments. 1969, what was then a third-tier a third tier, uh, English professional club, beating Arsenal in the League Cup final, 3-1, thanks to the legendary Don Rogers' two goals and Roger Smart as well. The great team there won the Anglo-Italian Cup that year and, and the following year, uh, beating the likes of Juventus and Napoli. Um, and then in in um, nineteen ninety, got promoted to the the the, the top division with Ozzy Ardiles as the manager at the time. Cruelly got demoted for financial irregularities, but then in uh, ninety three, it got promoted to the Premier League uh, with Glenn Hoddle as manager. Uh, one fleeting season in the, in the Premier League, and then relegated. And then in the second tier for a number of years before, you know, really in the two thousands, we've been bouncing around uh, between the third and fourth tiers. So the, the potential is really quite big. It's a, it's a big town. It's a big catchment area. It's got a really strong history. Um, so, uh, and, and, and you, know, you know, Swindon fans, you know, are really hunger, hunger for the success and, and the openness and, and engagement, um, you know, that football fans, you know, should expect and deserve. Well, that's well, certainly no one in, in Juventus uh, or, or Napoli is going to underestimate Swindon. I mean, you know, there's, it's it's a sleeping giant, Rob. It, it, it is, and I, I, you know, they certainly, as as as, I, as we were talking with Clem a few weeks ago, I think that that ten year plan of of a championship club is is very realistic for a size for a club of, of Swindon size. So that's that that I think is that I think is very good that he's going in with that kind of mindset that it could take that long, probably will take that long. And, and that I think is a, is a, is a valid goal. Just, to, just to wrap things up, um, you know, given what the club has been through, particularly in the last year, 18 months where, where things have, things have gone badly wrong off the field. We, we talk a lot on this show about governance, you know, just getting the structures right. Obviously there's a big fan led review going on at the moment. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, in some ways, the pandemic has given an opportunity for everyone to have a little think about how we structure football in this country, how we distribute money, just how we run the game. What lessons should we learn from Swindon as a case study? What If you could sort of pick two or three things out that went badly wrong and, 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 and lessons that can apply more widely. So I think one of the key lessons for me uh, in this is that the owners and directors test and review of owners needs to be an ongoing test. Because if you like, we, we were waiting and waiting for rightly claimed to be thoroughly reviewed and assessed by the EFL so that he could take over the club, which delayed things a bit. But equally, you got the same position where you've got a, you had an owner in Lee Power who didn't really want to own the football club anymore, wasn't paying the wages, wasn't paying the bills, you know, and there's a lot of back work to work through in terms of what happens to sort of monies that have been received in, you know, historic periods. And that's going to take us the time to work through. So I think it's really important that the, the reviews and checks and the suitability of owners is an ongoing check, might be annual or whatever it might be, rather than just someone coming in. You know, coming in check and taking over a club needs to be strong and thorough. But the ongoing tests and checks need to be really strong as well. I also think it illustrates in this case, you know, the strength of, of, of fan power, because ultimately, you know, the supporters trust that was part of and the supporters club and the, the boycotts of the club and the, 
you know, there was no way forward really for Lee Power in, in taking this club forward because he had lost the trust, lost the engagement of the fans. And the fans and the community are key stakeholders of a football club. And, you know, people that run football clubs really need to be aware of that. You know, you can't have a football club without fans. Well, I completely agree. Rob, congratulations and the best of luck. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. That's it. Thank you very much to all of our guests this week. Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. And I'm back on Tuesday for the Athletic Football Podcast. And Matt will be back with us next week for the Business of Sport podcast. And don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, then head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.